All right, taking a look at Jesus, you realize we're going to be in this for seven weeks. Seven weeks to take, take a look at Jesus. Don't do that real quick. No human being at any point in time, for whatever reason, has ever undertaken a more important study than the study of Jesus. Jesus, without question, is the most important person who has ever lived. Good morning, Mitch. Good morning. Let me repeat that. Jesus, without question, is the most important person who has ever lived. And we're going to get a, a whole bunch of pretty good looks at that this, this morning. Um, anybody in here that really likes to read and can read good and loud for me? You can do that. I may. All right, may I may do have you do that in a second. Then. I'm going to kind of get through this first part, but just below where we got there, where it says Jesus Christ, the promised Savior, I'll have you read some for me. Um, what we're going to take a look at here is has got the things listed here in that paragraph, that top paragraph it says we're going to look at him. Today is the promised Savior and the mighty God. Then in coming weeks, we'll see him as the great teacher, the Lamb of God. Praise God for that one. The risen Lord. We're going to look at uh, and, uh, judicial proofs that Jesus was raised from the dead. We're going to take a good look at him as the Lord of all and as our intercessor and as our righteousness, our all in all our life, our coming King, and our King forever. It's going to take seven weeks to get out through all of that. Um, I want to pause now. I want to go over with something that you don't have, and then we'll come back to that next part. In looking up and going through things about the greatness of Jesus, and that's a study that I was in, I wrote down these things. <clears throat> The life of Jesus is the greatest turning point of all history. Think about that. And here's a little story. A 6th century monk named Dionysius Exegius, if I'm saying that halfway right. This monk attempted to establish dates from the year of Jesus' birth. Although his calculations were evidently off by four to seven years, the principal purpose of his work was nevertheless clear. All time now is considered before Jesus. All time now that was before Jesus is now considered B.C., before Christ. And after came Anno Domini, the year of the Lord, or A.D. Think about that. For the whole world, and our whole world now, um, you can go to all of the European countries, the Far East, every country in the world, every country in the world, numbers their years, their dates, by A.D. or B.C. Awesome. Think about just just. That if that nothing else, and we're going to look at a lot of stuff, but if nothing else, look at the importance of this one man that all time is considered either before him or after him. All time considered either before Christ or after. 
Another thing I want to point out says the worldwide impact of Jesus' life is also remarkable in contrast to the small scale on which he lived his life. Although Matthew tells us of a short time in Egypt while Joseph hid him from Herod, probably about four years, the rest of his childhood and most of his adulthood was spent near Nazareth. There were festival pilgrimages to Jerusalem about 70 miles, but other than the time in Egypt, the full range of his life never exceeded about 130 miles. I might, uh, I, I looked for a map that I could bring that I thought would be large enough for you guys to be able to see from back there. Let me just move this. I want to kind of just give you a bit of an idea. And uh, this is not meant to be in any way good. But this is Israel at the time, if you can deal with them. Jerusalem sits about down here. Up here, way up here, you've got the Sea of Galilee. Over here is the Dead Sea. Up in this area here is Nazareth. Way up here at the top is Tyre and Sidon. It's about 70 miles from Nazareth to Jerusalem. And you were reading it, you're reading the Gospels about the numbers of times they walked this 70 miles. And think about that some. What about going from here to to um, what's the name of the town on the other side of the mountain? Um, Charlottesville? Charlottesville. From, from many areas around here, that'd be about 70 miles, right? About 40. 40? About 40? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whoa. So we maybe. We didn't even have to get further away than that. Yeah, you're looking at like Gordonsville, maybe. How about, how about going, how far is this to Roanoke? Maybe 90 miles, maybe. About 90 miles, so it's not quite that far. But 70 miles gives us an idea how far these people walked. They walked all that distance back and forth. They were there for these pilgrimages to go to the temple every year. At one point in time, Jesus went up to Tyre and Sidon, and it's evidently about 35 miles from Nazareth, going in the other direction. So his whole life, with the exception of those years when he was an infant, was spent in this 130-mile range. Never any further than that. Think about modern times and people who are famous. In the first place, if a person wanted to really gain fame, uh, and I, wanted, I don't know what word to use, but let's say like in the political world, they would be making contact. Good morning, good morning. Come in. Glad to see you this morning. And um, they would contact or try to influence capitals of nations. They would try to influence people with money. They would um, they'd, they'd be reaching out to try to reach the furthest parts of the world. They'd be doing everything that they could to expose their name and their name in front of the world. 
even sometimes we see people today, they'll take bad publicity but rather than no publicity at all in order to have their name out there. And you figure the small scale on which Jesus lived, not only in this small area, but let me read some of the things I've got down here. Uh, consider this. Jesus made no attempt to establish a base of influence in the great cities of the Roman Empire, nor did he attempt to make his message attractive to the wealthy and powerful. Quite the opposite, he stayed near home and drew his closest followers from humble, everyday folk. And think about this. A lowly life, born in a stable, not in a palace, a life in obscurity, never rising to fame. Consider where we are today, 2,000 years later, and how our lives are impacted by that one life. That one life that never did any of these things to draw national or worldwide attention. Never attempted to make himself in any way famous. Not born in a palace, but rather born in a stable. Lowliest, lowliest, lowliest of life that, that God could possibly have presented for humankind. And yet look how that life has changed the whole world. And certainly has changed our lives. Um, and so I'm going to go back now and we'll get into some of this. But I, I, I think in taking a look at Jesus, that that's one of the things that we really need to try to capitalize on is have in our mind how this lowly human life has so affected. And then comes then the question. If he was that unobscure, if he was that, I don't know what other word to use other than lowly, uh, and yet made all of this influence, all of these 2,000 years later, and he's still influencing lives, could he have been anyone else other than who he said he was. No other life could have possibly had that much influence. He had to have been God, the creator of the universe, coming in human form, coming in flesh. He had to be. Um, see, there, there's people who certainly doubt that Jesus some people even doubt that he even existed, but they certainly doubt that he was God. And yet we have these kinds of proofs that he couldn't have been anything less than God. All right. If you will, would you take and read, um, read those first two paragraphs all the way down, would you please? Pretty loud for us. Okay. <clears throat> Starting with hundreds of years? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Hundreds of years before Jesus came into the world, his birth was foretold. Grasping the essence of this truth alone can be life-changing. Of who else can we say this? No one. What other human being's birth would have been so important that other men could have even sensed it, much less known it, hundreds of years in advance? Only the human birth of the creator of the universe could carry that much importance. 
The first promise concerning the coming of the Messiah, who was to redeem his people, is found in Genesis 3.15. Later, in Genesis 22.18, God promised Abraham, In thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. In Genesis 49.10, the dying Jacob, speaking by inspiration and foretelling what would happen to the different tribes in the latter days, says concerning Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall be the obedience of the peoples of the peoples be, shall the obedience of the peoples be. And while the meaning here is not altogether clear, it is generally understood to mean that Judah was to continue as a nation with at least a nominal king until the coming of the Messiah which as a matter of historical record is what did happen, the Jews being dispersed shortly after that, from which time the Lord's people were to know their Messiah personally, to acknowledge him as their true and rightful king, and so to give their allegiance to him. Praise God. Thank you. A lot there, isn't there? But let's look at some historical fact there, that last little part, is that from the time of Isaac's promise, the scepter never departed from the people of Israel. They, even under the, under the Greek, matter of fact, even under the Babylonians, they left people in Jerusalem to be in charge there. And while they were very much captives, um, there was people left of the, of the family of Israel to be in charge of Jerusalem while the people, most of the people had been carried away to Babylon. Then came the Greek Empire. And same thing there. And then you see the same thing. You see it really shown to us in the Roman Empire in the time of Jesus where it talks about how uh, these people were definitely under Roman rule. Yet Rome allowed them to still have their own king. Herod is the example. There had always been a king in Israel. Even though they were under someone else's rule, there was never a time when there wasn't a king from the family of Israel in Israel. Never. Until Jesus came. Not that way today, is it? 70 AD was the big dispersal. Um, understand that that's only about... Uh, 30 years perhaps after Jesus' death and resurrection, because uh, we, if we can, this mark that we mark time with is off by a few years, but roughly 35 years or so after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, um, the people were all dispersed, it all fell apart. One of the reasons, one of the things that caused that was the, the rising up of Christianity. You need to, you need to imagine, um, and you don't really have to imagine it all. You can read it in the Book of Acts, and especially taking a look at who wrote the Book of Acts and how he wrote it. Um, that the place was a mess. Everything was in total chaos from the time of the um, um, Pentecost, when the when the Holy Spirit came on those people in the upper room. Look at what happened. I invite you, if you're not familiar with the book of Acts, get in it. And then read especially who wrote it. You see that Luke wrote it. 
And if you go back and look at Luke's gospel, in the very beginning, you see that he's writing to a man named Theophilus. And he, Luke was not one of the, not one of the twelve. He didn't, whether he knew Jesus or not, whether he had met Jesus or not, we're not told. We don't know. Luke comes on the scene after the resurrection. It doesn't mean he wasn't around before. It's just that we don't see him before the resurrection. <clears throat> but the, the whole place had become in such chaos, especially after Peter's sermon. And then after Stephen was stoned. But you understand that here's in Jerusalem, there's a section in Jerusalem, and there was this little building with an upper room, and a whole bunch of people got crowded into this upper room, right? I forget the number, but about 50 people, I think, were in this upper room when the Holy Spirit was given to them. And Peter, who had been a coward, who uh, when just 40 days earlier, when Jesus was crucified, had denied that he even knew him, hiding from the officials, afraid. And they'd been hiding in this upper room. But when the Spirit came on them, they all went out and started talking about Jesus and Peter started preaching. How many people came to the Lord that day? Remember? 3,000 people at the preaching of Peter. Can you just imagine that? Can you try to get that in your mind? That he go, they go out onto the streets and we're talking about a bunch of people and Peter starts preaching. People must have flocked. How do you get 3,000 people all of a sudden around somebody? 3,000 people came to the Lord that day. It's an area that's controlled by two things. The Jews, the Pharisees, and the Roman Empire. Let me tell you what, there wasn't neither one of them happy about this. They were set about to do anything they could to destroy it. As a matter of fact, they sent this guy Saul, or Saul either on his own start, took it under. He started, he started bringing people in that were going to what they called the way to become Christians to make sure that they were done away with in most cases, or at least locked up till they could try to get them to change their mind. Didn't work, did it? So we have the whole book of Acts then, um, written by Luke, who writes to Theophilus to says, set the record straight. And let me get this straight, what happened here, is what Luke is saying to Theophilus. So he records all of this. Such upheaval then began to continue throughout Jerusalem that the people who were becoming Christians were under great threat. A lot of them. And again, we have some examples, especially one being Stephen. If you read anything at all about Stephen, you find that Stephen was kind of an obscure fellow. He was, he was kind of a gentle, quiet soul. Obviously, from all the things that he said, was well-read in the Jewish religion, and he knew his Old Testament, and he was a pretty well-educated guy, but he wasn't any uh, leader of, uh, what do we call them today, these people that are trying to upset everything, uh, uh, antagonists and so forth. He, he wasn't doing that. He's just talking. He's preaching about Jesus. And you know what happened? 
they stuck up, they took up stones and threw them at him until they killed him. They killed Stephen right there on the street for preaching the gospel. A lot of people saw that. And the only thing that I'm trying to portray here is I'm trying to, to point out the upheaval that's going on with the people and it wasn't confined to Jerusalem, it's spreading all over the place. So by 35 years after Christ, the Roman Empire had had enough and they tore down the temple and they chased the Jews out of their country to the extent that they could. World War II came as a result of some of that and in 1948, as a result of World War II, we see Israel formed again as a nation and the people allowed to go back home. Can you see what I'm saying here? Can you see that, that what happened here with this one lowly life changed world history to the point that for 2,000 years, these people couldn't go home? And finally, where they were, Scattered around the ones that were unfortunate enough to be under Hitler's Nazi empire began to be exterminated. Jesus had this influence. The whole thing has to do whether or not people are aligned with Jesus Christ or opposed to Jesus Christ. And, and still today... <laughs> Take a look at the Middle East and you'll see that the influence, the opposing influence is rampant over there. Who are they killing? We don't get much of it in the news. It's being withheld from us. But there is a lot of Christian people in Africa and the Middle East who are being beheaded every day because of their belief in Jesus Christ. Small, obscure little man 2,000 years ago who just happened to have been the creator of the universe. I, uh, I'm not going to go into too much there of that, the following um, paragraphs. It's a matter of historical record of what did happen there and that they were dispersed. And then <clears throat> it's talking about in the latter part of that page uh, that from the time of the first promises that occurred in Genesis that really throughout Scripture, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, you find um, prophecies concerning the Messiah. Um, one of the things that I want to take a look at here, yeah, let's turn over to your next page. Um, that at the top left of that of your, your next page there, it talks about some of the prophecies, prophecies concerning Jesus and how they were fulfilled and I expect most of you know most of you are aware of these things um, but I'll turn to one let's go to, to Isaiah 53 and if you're not class if you're not familiar with Isaiah 53 you ought to be I want to invite you to do as much studying there as you can what I've got here in front, I printed it out. I printed it out from the Living Bible simply because of the way it said. But in Isaiah 53, verse 6, that all of us, like sheep, 
have strayed away. King James have said, have gone astray. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Get a contrast here and I'll read it for you out of the New King James. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone, we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, that is on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Where it says, we have turned everyone to his own way. The reason I rented this out from the Living Bible is this, the way it says it says, we have left God's paths to follow our own. Remember we've talked about in here what is the root of sin? Where does sin have its root? And this whole idea of saying to God what? Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me what to do. See, and this is what the prophet Isaiah is saying. God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. Have left God's paths to follow our own. It's, it's I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to, I don't need God. Don't tell me what to do. I'm going to follow my own path. I'm going to do my own thing. What I want us to see here is that that root of sin, that root of sin was the iniquity that God put on Christ for us. I, I don't want us to miss that. I don't want us thinking that the sins of Jesus, I mean the, the sins that Jesus died for was just murder and bank robbery and big things like that. The real reason that Jesus went to the cross was because of this whole idea of the human race not wanting to follow God but go their own way. We studied when we took a look at Lucifer that, that Lucifer's big sin was basically in wanting to be his own God. Again, he was saying, don't tell me what to do, I'll do it myself. He wanted to be God himself. Well, he does have a kingdom uh, of unrighteousness. Anyway, that's the point in taking a look at this promised Savior. Now, Moving down on there a little further in that next heading there, Jesus Christ, the mighty God. I have something I want us to look at too here. Thank you, Mike, for reading for me a while ago, by the way. Um, here it talks about when Jesus um, first began his ministry and Satan pulled him out into the desert and he was tempted 40 days and nights there by Satan. There's a one, two, three there that uh, we need to, to point out because we need to mark that down as the way we need to live. <clears throat> Satan got the first man, Adam, to disobey. But Jesus did not disobey his Father's will. Jesus defeated Satan, number one, by obeying the Father's will. There's, you'll, you'll find it before this course, course is over. We're even getting into a couple of lessons that have nothing to do with anything else other than obedience to, to come to a place where we want God to be the Lord of our life and we're really willing and wanting to obey. Number two, he used the word of God. And number three, he depended on the Holy Spirit for him. Uh, I want to, I because of lack of time, I want to leave that with you guys and I want to get to a couple of things here. 
um, a couple of names for God. We talked about this some when we first started about uh, the first part of Genesis, and we talked about Elohim. Elohim being the word of God that's used in, the, in many, many times throughout the Old Testament, but begins with Elohim in Genesis. And we use this word in talking about the triune God because the word Elohim is plural and let us make man in our image and so forth. Uh, the word being used there, Elohim, and it's, it's, a, it's a plural word, but we need to look at, there's a terminology here, and I'm not really an educated person, etymologically, etymologically, however you say that, has to do with being able to know languages. And the word means strength, or the strong one, Elohim, the strong one. In Genesis, we find the strong one creating the heavens, the earth, and man. And we see that the work suits his name because only the strong one could create. Now, there's another word I want us to get familiar with, El Shaddai. Whereas God, El, signifies strong or the strong one, the interest here centers upon the qualifying word Shaddai. It is formed from a Hebrew word shad, the breast. But in the scriptures, the word is invariably used for just a woman's breast. Shaddai, therefore, means primarily the breasted. The secondary meanings at once become evident. God is Shaddai. Catch this, guys. Because he nourishes he is the nourisher and the strength giver. He pours himself into believing and yielded lives. And not only so, he is the satisfier. As a fretful, unsatisfied baby is not only strengthened and nourished from his mother's breast, but is also quieted, rested, satisfied. So the believer in Christ finds in El Shaddai his strength giver and his satisfier, his nourisher. So we're going to be taking, we're just in the last few minutes, taking a look at Jesus Christ as the mighty God. But here's the two words that describe him. And Elohim, the strong one, strong enough to create everything that's created. And then El Shaddai. I, uh, I don't know how that strikes everybody, but it really strikes me. I, I see us, what do we call? We're called the children of God. And, and as, a, as an infant is fed from his mother's breast, God uses that picture to show us that that's what he's doing with us. We're his children. Born again, child of God. And we can come to him and in that same picture see that he gives, he nourishes us. What's he do when we read the word of God? He's nourishing us. He strengthens us. He stands by us. And let me tell you, he's strong enough to handle whatever comes along. He is the mighty God. So let me get into some of this. Uh, from Isaiah 9-6 where I was just reading there. And let, let me go back to it and read the whole thing here. 
Oh, I'm sorry, this is 53. I need to go to Isaiah 9, 6. 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And then it goes on talking about the throne of David. The mighty God, and that's, that's the emphasis here, is on the mighty God. <clears throat> Jesus defeated Satan. Jesus did mighty works. <laughs> did he ever? The pastor's been talking for the last few weeks about the storm uh, and being in the boat and Jesus calmed the wind. He could command evil spirits. He could heal the sick. He even raised the dead. And then, maybe we have time for this. Maybe I can conclude here. Turn, if you will, to John. It's 8, John chapter 8. I want to go to The whole of John chapter 8 is amazing. But I want us to see something here. I won't have time to get into all of that. <clears throat> You'll recall that Jesus had healed a man at the well of Bethesda and uh, the, the Pharisees and so forth was arguing with him and um, he had said to this man his, his sins were forgiven. They took great exception to that. In their opinion, nobody but God could forgive sins. And of course, they were right. But they weren't seeing Jesus as God. And so they were really, really upset with him. And Jesus made a comment to them, uh, which, which is greater to say uh, your sins are forgiven or to take up your bed and walk. And he told the man, take up his bed and walk. And the guy who had been lame, it says from birth, began to take up his, took up his bed and walked. He walked away. There was a big deal followed that. They went on into the um, praetorium and um, uh, there was a lot of conversation and so forth ensued there. I'm going to start in verse 12. Uh, this is about the central conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. Then Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the breath of life. So I'm going to continue with the red letters. Verse 14. Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from, and I know where I am going, but you do not know where I come from and where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, 
for I am not alone, but I, and you'll notice the am there is italicized, meaning that it wasn't in the original scripture, but he says, I with the Father who sent me, meaning I am with the Father who sent me. And he continues here, continues, he's trying to say to them that he is God. They're not getting it. Uh, he goes on the ancient long chapter, but he goes through this whole thing with them and he talks about whoever commits a sin is a slave of sin. If the Son set you free, you're free indeed. Um, he's, and he gets down here and said, where he says, I speak what I have seen with my Father, and you do not know what you have seen with your Father. And they answered him and said to him, Abraham is our Father. And Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would, not do, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I learned from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. And he's talking about them, them being the sons of Satan. I'm not sure just where I wanted to try to start here. But anyway, I want to bring you down to the last part of it. Um, verse 54. Jesus said, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God, yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say, I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. And they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out from the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Here's the, the final point in this thing about being the mighty God. Yes, we need to be able to understand that he was mighty enough to create the heavens and the universes and, and life. And that's an extreme power. But that's not the only mighty that's important for us to grasp when we think about Jesus Christ as the mighty God. We need to think about him in terms of being mighty enough to what? Forgive sins. Okay. That's, that's the whole point. Remember, we, we talk about quite a lot in here, and we will continue to talk a lot about this book. This book is just so much history. Unless you can apply it to yourself. And that's what's important for us to grasp about Jesus being the mighty God. It's also important for us to grasp about him being the promised Savior. He was promised to us from the Garden of Eden that he would come. The promise was kept. He's the mighty God. Guys, if he's mighty enough to create the universe, 
he is mighty enough to forgive any and all sins. If he's mighty enough to do that, he's mighty enough to deal with whatever little problems you and I have. Anything that's sticking in us like us, when we stick in our craw, we have, and that's, that, that's what we need to be able to grasp as, as the purpose of application. We need to be able to apply God's word to our life and we need, as we learn all of these things, learn how we can apply that to our life. Put it to my own. Do you think that I'm going to encounter a problem that is so big that God can't handle it? Do you? No, not going to happen, is it? So what that ought to do to my confidence, how should I walk and live and move and have my being day by day? I ought to be able to walk around as one of the most confident human beings on the earth. And so can you. There's nothing, nothing. See, the, the thing that we studied about being reconciled, man, put back together with God the way it was before the fall even occurred. That same kind of relationship. Adam could have, anything that would have came that Adam needed, God would have provided. You understand that? You believe that? We need, to be, we need to be able to see that. God had just created him. Not only had he created him, he created everything around him. Nothing was going to happen that God couldn't handle except for one thing. And that is, is that God had given Adam as a matter of loving him and not wanting him to be robotic. And I don't know what other word to use. Allowed him to be volitional. So God had no control over what Adam would choose. And he has no control over what you and I would choose. I'm standing on the street and a man's got a gun pointed in my face. There's no controlling what that man might choose to do. Because God made him volitional. He can choose. He can choose to put it away and walk away or he can choose to shoot me. That's what we're up against. That's why some people argue about this thing about being mighty enough. They, they think that God is going to knock that pistol out of the guy's hand. It's, it's not that that kind of thing can't happen. If that's the will of God, he's capable of doing anything he wants to do, but he's not in the business of violating volition. Outside of that, there's nothing that God can't handle for you or for me. Let's pray. Mighty God, God help us to learn all of the ways in which you are mighty to each of us. God help each of us here today as we move through this life, God. Be able to depend upon you to handle the circumstances that come our way and give you the room to be able to do it all according to your will. Pray for the service this morning. God, may you be glorified. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.